Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I am your host, Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today, we welcome back our very special guest, world-renowned back expert, Dr. Stuart McGill. He is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Waterloo, where he spent 40 years leading a lab and a research clinic to understand back pain. He has published over 245 peer-reviewed scientific papers and several textbooks. Now he continues as his chief scientific officer at BackFit Pro, where he assesses difficult back pain cases from around the world. In this episode, we covered his thoughts on degenerative disc disease, exercise prescription approaches, and refining the art of patient interaction. This is part two of my two-part interview with Dr. McGill. Enjoy. Hello again, Dr. McGill. How are you doing? Fabulous, Tiffany. Fabulous. How about you? Fabulous as well. Thank you so much for your time last time talking about nonsensical lower pain, sharing the stories, and I mean, we're just excited to have you back on again to talk about uh, some other things. Last time we talked about nonsensical lower pain, which is one of the things that you disagree with as a general belief among the world of low back pain. There's another thing that you disagree on, which is the nomenclature of degenerative disc disease. Can you explain a little bit more why you disagree with that and your rationale? Yes. The mental anguish of patients that I see who've been told your back pain is because you have degenerative disc disease is unnecessary and uh, it's tortuous to them, to think that they are degenerating, it removes their hope. When in fact, in many cases, the opposite is true. Last time we spoke about Kirkcaldy-Willis and the uh, cascade, and uh, quite often uh, what, you see, degenerative disc disease, it was a radiological diagnosis from a radiologist who never saw the patient. It was to describe a flattened disc. Now, if the disc is a bit flat, but only one of them is a bit flat, it's not a degenerative disease, it's an injury. If you go back, you will find the injury if you know how to read the uh, image uh, evidence. Um, So how I then communicate it to them, it depends on the person's personality. Do they obsess over a label or an image? If they do, I really don't need to go there. I just explained to them, this was the scenario that would have led to this kind of injury, but here is our plan to uh, uh, deal with it. And by the way, the cascade for this kind of injury is you will lose a little bit of disc height. It's not degenerative disc disease, uh, but slowly it will stiffen. And uh, in a few years, the pain will be burned out Uh, for this particular kind of pain mechanism, you don't hear of old men like me talking about this pain. This was a pain in your 20s and 30s. And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, my mother had the same, but she never complained about her pain. So I've just turned now something from degenerative into a concept of hope, which is so important. So that's, that's the first thing. Now, let's assume that all the lumbar discs are a bit flatter now. So it's not an injury. It is they are getting older and and, and they're, they're, the discs are, are drying out a little bit. Well, I explain that they're not 16 anymore. Welcome to the club. But here's a strategy to manage the symptom. If there is a symptom, I mean, many people are told they have degenerative disc disease and they have no symptoms. So does it matter? I, I would uh, argue uh, that it doesn't. But sometimes it truly is a degenerative situation in that maybe they have ankylosing spondylitis and you will see and measure that to give them that conclusion. Maybe they have dish where the bones traction spurs uh, anterior to uh, each vertebra, they start to connect and now the motion is anyway. uh, We would still create a plan if that's what the uh, situation was. But um, 
I uh, will just leave it at that then as to mm -hmm. why I don't think degenerative disc disease, uh, it's a default, it's unnecessary, and it really doesn't help. It's interesting to think about or even contrast what we've talked about in non-specific low back pain and trying to, as the best as we can, put uh, a specific diagnosis or cause to the pain that someone's experiencing. But here, the label of degenerative disc disease is actually not helpful in what we do and not helpful for patients if they take this label in a very negative way. So it's very interesting to think about that contrast. Well, I, I used to tell the joke, Tiffany, um, uh, my, my mother had a few wrinkles on her face could you imagine a doctor or a radiologist saying, well, hi, Mrs. McGill, I see you have degenerative face disease. <laughs> yeah. Now, is there any redeeming quality to that? Not at all. Wow. I have degenerative <laughs> hair disease. It's. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that that is very true. I'm going back to the thought of giving a reason for someone's pain. Would you say that the specificity should be tissue-specific or movement-specific or somewhat of a combination of both? Like, what sort of specificity are you looking at? It's all of the above is the answer. I'm just trying to figure out the best way to, uh, to frame this. Okay. Here, I'm going to start with a clinical story, if I may. Mm -hmm. It's a tragic story in the beginning but a wonderful story in the ending. A fella came to see me at the university. This is when I was still there at the research clinic. And he said, uh, oh, hi, uh, Professor McGill. I hear you're different, but here's my story. I've been to multiple therapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, the surgeon, but now I'm at the pain clinic. No one can find my pain and they say, I'm a pain magnifier and it's in my head. He says, I don't think that's correct. I think the pain is in my back and leg. But if the pain is in my head, that means I'm crazy. And if I'm crazy, I can't live with that. I'm going to put a bullet in my head in two weeks. Sir, I'm giving you two weeks. Now, I have a suicide case on my hands. This is heavy stuff. This is heavy clinical pressure. And I said, okay, well, do you have pain right now? And he says, no. And I says, well, what do you need to do to cause your pain? And he said, well, I do this little maneuver. And I said, well, can you show me? And he said, what? You, you want me to create this pain that feels like someone has taken art of glass, ripped open my hamstrings, and I'm just bleeding out. Well, that's quite graphic and severe. And I said, well, I have to say that it's the only chance I have to understand your pain to help you. And I said, you've been, and I read his dossier when he was referred, he's been to about 15 different medical specialists. I said, has no one ever asked you to show them the mechanism of your pain? And he said, no. And I thought, what a, that, that, that is an indictment of broad medical practice. So I said, well, I'm sorry, but it's the only way that I have to do it. So he said, okay. Anyway, he wound himself through this very funny movement. He started standing, and then he went into uh, a bit of a lateral bend, and he twisted himself around at the bottom uh, to be flexed and bent over, and then wound himself up and around the other way. And as he came up through top dead center, oh, now, I heard a cavitation. I heard a clunk. Hmm. I didn't tell you this, but I put on my instrumentation before he did this, being a scientist, of course. And I was measuring spine motion, and I was measuring muscle activation through EMG. But I really didn't need to. I knew what was going on at that instant. He experienced a clunk or a micro-movement trapping the nerve, true nerve trap, sizzling down his leg and giving him this pain. But here's what the science showed. As he wound himself through this range of motion in his spine, 
He was controlled with stiffness. The muscles were doing what they were supposed to do, ensuring sufficient stability and stiffness. But when he got up to top dead center, that going around the circle caused a mechanical refraction. So now that when he got up to top dead center, he let his muscles relax. As he let his muscles relax, the control went and his spine clunked. And that's what we heard. And that was what caused the mammoth radiation. I laid him on his tummy and did a little bit of decompression to see if we could reduce the symptoms. We did a, a little bit. And I said, I know exactly what's going on. I'll see you in three days if you settle down again. He came back after three days, again, a little bit uh, symptomatic, but nowhere near the shard of glass running down through his hamstrings. And I said, here uh, is what I need you to do now to test the mechanism that we hypothesize and uh, to, to see if, if there's a, a strategy for you. And I taught him how to do sufficient abdominal bracing and sufficient stability achievement. Poked my fingers into his lateral obliques and I said, push my fingers out. Don't suck in. That would be destabilizing. Push your lat muscles out laterally. Flare out into your belt, so to speak. And he got it. And it was very easy to coach. And then I said, all right, now let's repeat the offense. You could see the fear in his eyes. And then he went around the circle, coming back up to top dead center, which remember is the pain trigger. He's going, ah, 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 ah. He's there. I said, hold on to it. Don't let the muscles go. His face changed. He was astounded. I said, let's do it again. He did it again. No pain trap. We arrested the micro movement because we understood it with precision. Uh, it took two or three months to wind down that pain sensitivity and the anger and sensitivity of the nerve because of the number of times it had been hammered. After about three months, I said, come on back and uh, put the instrumentation on, and it was beautiful. He wound himself around through the circle, came up through top dead center, but he didn't relax. He maintained sufficient control and arrested the trap. And then we followed up with a couple of years. I didn't, but one of my assistants did, and he was fine. Never heard from him again. About 10 years after that, he calls me up and he says, would you see my daughter? My daughter is a scholarship athlete down in the States. She's a heavy athlete in, in track and field. I think she was a discus thrower, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, I saw her and he came and brought me some very nice selection of beers from the town he was from and whatnot. And uh, I said, I'm curious, tell me, how, how did you, did you ever have another, you know, tell me about your, after I saw you. And he said, it was amazing. He said, I never had a, another acute episode ever again. And I'm not lying, Tiffany. This was wow. he never he he was so clever and so easy to coach, and so aware of his own body. He never had another up. And remember, my job was he, we had to stop uh, lead poisoning, which he threatened after two weeks. And he's a pretty happy camper. He works in a very physical agricultural job, very solid citizen. But the system drove him to thoughts of suicide that was his only way out mm -hmm. anyway there's a little bit of a, a story and again i ask you as a listener was that a mechanical approach a psychological intervention was there some cognitive behavioral therapy was there some self-empowerment was there coaching wasn't it all of that yeah yeah, it's uh, it's an emotional story to tell, but uh, you know, again, uh, I I should say to give a perspective on the kind of uh, uh, patients that uh, we get, we would never get a patient who says, "Oh, I've got fresh back pain. I'm going to run off and see McGill." Mm 
So we have a bias in the type of patients that we see. When I was at the university, insurance companies would send their, now they were called their liabilities. <laughs> These were the long-termers who weren't getting better with uh, usual sending them off to uh, the Cairo or the physio or whoever it was. And uh, I, they sent me the insurance liabilities. And uh, I must say that was a different game. The people had no skin in the game. Uh, some of them were late for their appointments and, uh, you know, they just had no commitment. They thought this was just another uh, medical appointment. Uh, some of them, though, bought in and uh, did very well. Some of them, as we found follow-up after two years where there were some that it couldn't even remember coming to the university. But again, they had no skin in the game. But these days, we attract the kind of person who is truly interested in uh, enhancing their life, getting off compensation or whatever the case may be. Uh, and that is a bias in the type of person that we see. But I will also say that every person we see is a total failure of the medical system. We don't see them unless they've already been to 10 clinicians or so and have failed. But uh, once they go through the assessment and the breadth of it, they say, well, no one's ever touched us like this before. No one has ever... Uh, uh, done these types of tests that replicated my pain precisely. And as we did the tests, I learned what my pain triggers were with precision and before I was clueless. But anyway, there's uh, a little bit of a perspective on the type of patient, which adds a bias to this. And I realize that, uh, that right. we do see. In the last episode, you mentioned a few impediments to why don't we have this sort of long detailed assessment of low back pain for example po policies or financial causes there's no code to bill for that so now even if clinicians more clinicians get to learn the methods that you use and have the skill to conduct detailed assessment how much of a difference would that make in the whole medical system? As you said, you know, many of these patients coming to you are a failure of the system. Well, I have evidence to uh, answer that with, uh, for example, in the state of Montana, I went uh, there. This was quite a number of years ago, and I put on a three-day course for uh, all of the clinicians who were billing the state uh, and the HMO for uh, low back pained clients. They all had to come to this uh, course and we workshop things for three days. And then the uh, group that invited me did follow up and they said, prior to your coming, it took X number of visits on average with a back pained patient that dropped to almost a half after I was there. Uh, I know that there's some fire departments, for example, that implemented uh, the concepts of spine hygiene and training and uh, efficient movement, etc. And the cost of a back injury prior to doing this was on average about 40,000 US dollars. Afterwards, it was about 10. I know of a, uh, a tire, car tire manufacturer where the compensation costs for uh, low back pain was the previous year. I, I forget, uh, again, I, I wasn't prepared to answer this, so I, I'm, I'm, I might have the numbers not exactly right, but it was somewhere approaching one and a half million dollars was the direct payouts for back compensation in this uh, one particular uh, tire company. After they put in an occupational health nurse plus a, a kinesiologist, who I called a job coach, uh, they uh, did some front-end ergonomics with the workers, but they also gave them movement strategies. In other words, if you're going to pick up a car tire off the floor over there, you, you can't really use ergonomics and design the job, but you can coach the person how to use their hips and their spine less. Uh, in any case, uh, the uh, program 
for those two salaries plus implementing the program cost about a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, the payback the following year was five times uh, what the 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 cost of it was. They put in a quarter of a million and they saved five times that, which would be uh, 1.25 million. Mm. Uh, so I, I can go through, you know, layers of evidence that way that um, it 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 does uh, make a difference. Is that what you were looking for in, in terms of an answer for, from an evidenced point of view? Yeah, I, I think that really shows with this method, you produce from it evidence that you can present, let's say, if you were to do someone who would do advocacy to change the policies or uh, insurance company building codes. And from that to change how clinicians can be can be in the system and use some of the methods that you use. I uh, I was trying to answer the question, so I I hope that did. Mm. Going back to the story you told about this uh, poor guy in the beginning that was really just terrified by the immense pain that he was experiencing, and you told him to wind down and desensitize for a few months. And I recall you in other podcast talking about virtual surgery is that what you the concept of virtual surgery that you did on him can you explain what you mean by virtual surgery yeah when would you use that yeah okay no we did not do virtual surgery on him virtual surgery uh came from the concept that some surgery works because it's forced rest not because the anatomy was altered with a knife now of course uh very often the reduction in symptoms following surgery is because they altered the anatomy with the knife. So they had a precise target for the knife. That means it wasn't nonspecific low back pain. It was very specific. They knew what to do. They hit the target and the uh, pain was addressed. But sometimes it's simply the process of going through surgery and the next day you're not going to the gym to train you're taking it easy you're getting up out of bed or whatever going for a pee coming back doing a few uh movements etc but the idea is to uh do that for a couple of days and then start a short little interval walking program and then you build it up from there so virtual surgery we would choose people who, I'll give you an example of an exercise addict. So let me tell uh, a, a case study. Let's take a 32-year-old woman. She's got two young kids at home. And uh, I, I say to her, uh, I've just proven to you that the laxity in your pelvic ring that you are reporting and showing as SI joint pain and low back pain is exacerbated by what you are telling me is your daily training routine, which is going to the, the, the gym every day and riding the elliptical for half an hour or 40 minutes. And then her response is, oh, I have to go and ride the elliptical every day because it is my coping mechanism. The kids drive me nuts. It will murder my husband if I don't <laughs> get on that elliptical every day and relieve some stress. And I try and point out to you that it was the stresses of the elliptical. Very precisely, we measured this is the cause uh, of your symptoms. And she says, well, I, you know, uh, so I say, all right, go get your surgery. And she goes, I said, I, I hope they can cut that pain out. But uh, that is an instability type of pain uh, that will require some kind of in your pelvis anyway. The only way I know how to do it would be to, to use a screw. And uh, I said, or how about this? Let's try virtual surgery because I'm dealing with an exercise addict. I have to change behavior, which is an addiction. Remember, she, she'll, she, she's going to commit <laughs> virtual murder if, if she doesn't deal with it. So this is a perfect time for virtual surgery. I said, well, instead of the surgery, before you do that, let's try this. Let's pretend you have surgery. Don't be quite dramatic about it. I will anoint her. There, you've just had your surgery. Now, you can't go to the uh, training center tomorrow because you just had spine surgery, quite extensive. Instead, you're going to rest. 
And then you're going to enter. And I give her a post-surgical recovery generic approach. How often do you think that works? Well, I, I've, I've, I've measured it I, uh, with follow-up. If the client comes in and they say, I've tried everything and they now tell me that the last thing for me is surgery. Okay, so that's the subcategory. It's, it's quite a tight category now. I've tried everything. The last thing I should do is surgery. Or the last hope I have is surgery. Of those people, after doing this virtual surgery program, in follow-up, 95% of them avoided surgery. And in two years, they were glad that they did. So I can stand by that statistic. So that is virtual uh, surgery. But uh, I must say that some people take that to mean bed rest. No, it doesn't. What you do post-surgical is you may take a day or two to calm things down. But then, as I said, you're going to get up and you're going to shuffle down the hall and back every two hours. And then it's every hour. Now you start doing a few wall push-ups. <laughs> you might start taking a TRX strap and doing a few... Um, uh, pulls, uh, for example, uh, you know, not moving your back, standing up, but just leaning back and start getting some exercise going. Then you might get a little bit of nerve mobility, uh, depending on whatever the uh, precise and specific cause of the, the back pain was. Let's say, assume it's a dynamic disc bulge. Uh, then uh, we, we wind it down. Um, I gave the example of the golfer if we have to wind down uh bone bruise uh types of pain that that's that's not weeks it's it's usually uh two or three months but uh there you go uh, yeah. uh I, I can give you the efficacy which i can stand by and uh some of the thoughts about um and by the way some of my surgical colleagues do this as well They'll hand them my back mechanic book and say, read the chapter on virtual surgery. Go try it. And then if it works, fabulous. If it doesn't, come back and see me. <laughs> and, you know, I'm happy with that. And and thank goodness we have uh, our skilled surgeons because there are cases where, you know, that truly is uh, the, the desirable uh, intervention. I, I just hope that I can add some precision. I, I, let me tell you a story about this. This is kind yeah. of fun. It goes back to that nonspecific low back pain. But I, I saw a patient and uh, I wrote in my report, you have a dynamic disc bulge underhooking the nerve root at the right lateral foramen of L4. Uh, the surgeon read this, did the surgery, but then sent me a letter back said, Professor McGill, tell me, how did you know the nerve was underhooked at L4? And I said, well, that's exactly what the assessment showed. As we drifted the uh, spinal cord caudally, it fell into the uh, uh, the disc bulge, which when we uh, positioned them in a certain way to reduce the disc bulge, the trap didn't occur. So anyway, I, I won't go beyond that uh, any further, but uh, mm. I, I hope that's mildly entertaining. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> So what I'm saying with your virtual surgery approach is that for a moment of time, we're going to stop what's causing your pain. With that, the goal is to desensitize the pain. But during that time, we're still going to do some other activities, which specific to your case, that's going to keep you active. And as you progress in that virtual surgery post-op recovery, would slowly introduce you back to the previous activity that you were doing with some other techniques. Would that be a correct understanding? Yes. Mm. So now it's interesting because it's, you know, it's widely accepted that exercise intervention is the most effective for treating chronic low back pain and that we're, we're taught that um, all exercise are more effective than minimal interventions and there's not really one exercise modality that's superior than another and some people take this to say if we have a low back pain patient it's important that we encourage exercise as long as the patient 
likes, prefers that sort of exercise modality and adhere to it, this is how we approach treating low back pain. What, what do you think about that approach? That's why patients come and see me. They continue to replicate the cause of their pain because unbeknownst to them, their exercise program that's generic is irritating the pain pathway. Yeah. I, I would say that's probably the case in over half of the people that we uh, see here. Make the exercise specific to uh, allow the tissues to adapt in the way that they need that you've just proven in your assessment to reduce their pain and restore their performance. You know, you're, you're trying to enhance resilience and performance. Um, could you take a St. Bernard, who's a dog, by the way, <laughs> and train him like a greyhound to win at the greyhound track? No. It's not possible. Mm. Can you take certain people and train them to be a weightlifter or a runner? Um, you know, it's so interesting in the old Eastern European and Soviet systems for uh, athlete selection. They would do it based on mechanics and to some degree in urology. So if you were in Russia 30 years ago, if you had the right hip mobility and shoulder mobility, plus the explosive neurology, you might be uh, an Olympic weightlifter. Or if you had another feature, they would channel you into something else. But the North American approach was all self-selection. We didn't use uh, a priori. We would say, well, you know, try a sport. And if a, a kid is no good at it, they drop out. But if a kid is good at it, it means they had something. And I know this because I've had the fabulous opportunity to measure some of the best athletes in the world. Every single one has features that have enabled them to be the fastest man in the world, the second fastest woman in the world, the uh, most powerful in terms of a weight, uh, Olympic weight, the strongest in strong man and, and powerlifting, uh, the most incredible dominant athletes in soccer and hockey and, and, and et cetera. They are all somewhat freakish in that they have a feature on the end of the human condition that allows them to, to do all of this. Anyway, uh, exercise is very specific. And, uh, oh, I mean, I can give you studies after studies on, on this. If you, if, if you like, I, I know you, you were a, a physical education student at one time, correct? Mm -hmm. So uh, there was a team and you probably know them. Uh, they were uh, an elite volleyball team. And the coach said, I want you to, they, uh, back pain wasn't an issue. I'm just talking about generic exercise and how people respond. And I, I but they were all volleyball. Volleyballers, that was unifying. Um, I said, uh, the coach said, can you help them to jump five centimeters higher, two and a half inches? And uh, I thought, okay, well, let's try a strength training program based on a squat exercise. Uh, they all did the same squat regimen. And we were surprised. Half of the team jumped higher. 20% of the team, no difference in their jump height. 30% of the team lost their vertical jump. It was compromised by the squat training program. And I thought, wow, I better repeat this study. That was a surprising result. We repeated it. We got exactly the same results within a, a player or two. What's going on? What are the... Now, so it's a non-specific team, but now I'm going to get specific. How can I differentiate subgroups? And here's what I learned. I said to the players, if you're naturally quick, go to this side of the room. If you're naturally strong, go to this side of the room. Bingo. And, and by the way, that came from my knowledge of neurology and, and high performance. But anyway, what would you predict? What group got better with squat training? The naturally quick or the naturally strong? Which the group? strong one. The strong one jumped higher with squat training? Yeah. No, dead wrong. Um, no, no, it was the naturally quick. So when you have a quick neurology, adding more strength allows you to jump higher because it's a pulsing, boom, strength. And then you have to relax because when a muscle contracts, it creates force and stiffness. 
you can't move if you're maximally strong and, and turning the muscle to high, full activation. You have to pulse and then let the muscles relax to get the speed to jump. But the ones who are naturally strong, you add more strength to strength. You increase the stiffness and they don't jump as high. Try hitting a golf ball next time you go to the driving range and, and try and hit it even further with more muscle and you'll see it doesn't go as far. Mm -hmm. You actually ruin it. So the first question now is what's the base neurology of that person? Because that determines the specificity of the exercise. We had to uh, train the strong athletes to contract and relax faster, not with more intensity. Mm. See? And then I did something else. I arranged the team from tallest to shortest in standing stature. Name, name off one all the way through to 14 or however many players were on the team. Now sit down and repeat the exercise. Guess what? The order changed. And what we were measuring, body length to leg length ratios. The longer the body, the shorter the leg. When they jumped, they were knee dominant. They were more upright and they used leg strength and knee strength to jump high. The ones who had shorter bodies and longer legs used less knee power and more hip power. They would move their hips back and use their hips to jump. Now we get into, well, should it be a front squat or a back squat? A front mm -hmm. squat is a knee dominant squat. A back squat is a hip dominant squat. So you're starting to see now how tuning a person is specific on their anatomy, their base neurology their learning style, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just an example. Um, I would argue that uh, generic exercise only comes from studies that have studied nonspecific low back pain. But as yeah. soon as you look at an individual in front of you, the exercise will that, that really feeds the adaptation and the performance with resilience that you're looking for is very specific. <laughs> I think of just this came into my head. I, I, uh, know the power lifter holds the Canadian, the American record for men over 75 years of age. Do you think you could train him like a 30 year old no. for deadlifting? No, you have to decompress the spine, hang from a bar, do a tummy lay to allow the training capacity to get him to set a record for people that old. You don't have to do that with 24 year olds, but that was a hack specific to him tuning the exercise programming in that case. So uh, I know those aren't, well, that was to avoid uh, back injury. But uh, anyway, hope you see how specific exercise is. And uh, what we do here is is very specific, change the course of people who failed. It's really exciting to see the potential of how giving specific exercise prescription can target what the person really needs and what they don't need on the other hand and and help them improve in whatever they need to improve but dr mcgill for the average clinician let's say that are or students are listening to this podcast right now thinking i don't have that set of skills yet but i would like to be a bit more specific in my exercise prescription and i don't want to let's say aggravate the patient in front of me because i gave something specific and that was actually not the right exercise to give do you have any advice for that? Uh, I do, and uh, it's education. Mm -hmm. So we've put together uh, what we call the Summit uh, course, which begins with 50 hours of online learning, giving a base foundation in anatomy, neurology, biomechanics, uh, social psychology, uh, coaching techniques, the art of interviewing and extracting relevant information, what really matters uh, from the uh, client, et cetera, et cetera. Then we follow that with three days of hands-on skills development somewhere. Our next one happens to be in Montreal in uh, May, I think it is. But anyway, that's what we have put together to address those like you who want to seek um, a level of, uh, I call it mastery. And it's not to forget all that you already know. We build on what you already know. So if you come from a background of strong understanding of pain 
and so great. If you come from a strong understanding of a psychological perspective, great. If you come from a background of these are the modalities that I use for pain control, great. Fantastic. But let's add to your toolbox now uh, some more skills so that you help a broader range of people to a higher degree. Anyway, that's my answer. Yeah, uh, that's that's very fair. Um, in the remaining time we have together, I'd like to glean from your wisdom on you know, the art of patient interaction and patient education. When you talked about degenerative disc disease, the concern you have is that the language instills a, like a faulty concept in patients about their spines. But on a similar line of thought, there is evidence to discourage clinicians using languages like instability or muscle weakness to talk about spines because, you know, it could develop kinesiophobia, the fear of movement among patients with clients with uh, chronic low back pain. So, you know, as clinicians, how we frame things can easily create placebo or nocebo effect. How do you go about explaining pain trigger or things about stability versus instability to your clients? And did, have you changed your approach over the years? Uh, okay, so there's two questions. Mm. Um, well, first of all, uh, I think you're discussing the art of coaching. And when, you know, we, we get exactly the same people who come in and they're very fear of movement, they're overly stiffened and whatnot. And it's almost always the result of self-coaching or bad clinical coaching. Mm -hmm. And it that's what it is. W would I use the word degenerative disc disease or uh, something else? Uh, what was the word you used now? Uh, instability to a patient? Well, the answer is it depends. Uh, clients are very different. If I see the person has a little bit of an obsessive kind of personality, uh, they focus on uh, a word or a feature and, and manufacture a bogeyman in their head, I would never use that word. The next person comes in as a mechanical engineer. They understand mechanics and I use the word well. It's, it's you let a little air out of your car tire, it becomes, it's lost its turger. Oh, they've lost stiffness. Yeah, you, you got it. So now I can use the word instability and they know that the creation of stiffness addresses the instability. And then they are very savvy to the concept of what we would call sufficient stability, just enough. So if you had an ACL deficient knee, the, the discussion wouldn't change. So the words are very important, but you've already got a read on the type of client you're working with and you choose your words. So that's how I would uh, uh, frame that. I've already covered coaching style and remember the volleyball players, whether they are uh, an explosive, quick, naturally quick kind of athlete versus a strength athlete. You're going to love this. There is a personality profile and a learning profile based on neurology. If you have an explosive athlete, chances are they have what some people would label as attention deficit disorder. Their brain is bing, 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 one thing to another. They are explosive. Let's go. You can coach them for about 15 seconds, and then that's all they can take at that one time. The athlete who's more of an endurance or a strength kind of neurology, you can have some pretty interesting discussions working through these things. But next time you work with athletes, remember this and see if it isn't true. So your coaching style depends on their learning style and, and, and neurology, as your word choice does. So this is what we, we teach uh, in the course. Uh, people are different. There's no single ways. Sometimes I get out anatomic models and I'll show them what is a trigger, if we define it, and what their strategy is. And once they image that in their brain, they got it. Oh, I, I know what I need to do and, and how to affect that. The last bit, you asked how I've changed. And I will say I've gotten much better 
at realizing that there is no perfect way in human interactions. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. Sometimes it requires an approach of the utmost of love, empathy, respect for that person, recognizing their pain. And as I said, their pain is what they tell you it is. But other times it's tough love. You're dealing with the addict, the exercise addict. And you say, well, you can keep doing this if you like. You're really influencing now through your behavior, your outcome. But if we can deal with that addiction in a strategic way, and I might not even choose those words to use to them, but, you know, I might tell them and have the discussion uh, about exercise addiction. So do you see how that that's a tough love kind of uh, interaction with the client, not that utmost of love and empathy? So you're, 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 you're swinging back and forth in your play acting to get the desired outcome. Every person is different. So uh, to finish off that, I, I and I've gotten a lot better at that. So when you say, have I changed? I, I continue to try and become better at what I do every day. COVID was a real game changer for us in that I'd never done a virtual assessment before. I hated them. I, I thought this was awful talking to someone through this medium that we're through today, a Zoom call. You had to do it online, of course, to feel the person and interact. But COVID stopped all that. So I began doing online uh, consults. Oh, Tiffany, my first couple were awful. I didn't realize there was a time lag of five seconds between here and Australia trying to. And then I would say, okay, now suck up some air and stand up. And they would sit down and I go, what? Hold I didn't say that. And then I, I, I rose my voice and I thought, oh, what am I doing? And so I, I didn't know how to interact on this delayed technology. And then we got some broadband uh, hookups here. Everything improved. And then I learned how to coach better creating visual cues with my word choice. And I became so better coach over the last two or three years because of those coaching sessions driven by COVID. So it was a really rough start. And, and I remember those first two or three patients, I called them up afterwards and said, I'm not charging you. I'm giving your money back. I'm so disappointed in myself. <laughs> so there you go. Have I changed? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's a, very nice all the way around back to the discussion actually to being specific because even in our interaction with clients being specific to their communication style their personality their uh, other demographic factors really matter and it doesn't mean we have to shy away from languages like instability or muscle weakness as long as we put it in properly in a way that helps them understand in a positive way and help them understand that this is what they need to overcome in order for them to experience change in their condition. So that's, yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. I, uh, just a, a final comment on that. Hey, do you know who Jordan Peterson is? Yes. Okay. Um, I was listening to his description of cognitive behavioral therapy one day and the upshot of it was at the end of the day it's having a truly honest discussion with that person and i thought a lot about that afterwards and isn't that what we're all trying to do how you would talk to a five-year-old is different than a 10-year-old versus a 20-year-old versus an 80-year-old have they been traumatized? Are they tortured with pain? Are they truly resistant to anything you have to say? It's their mother that's paying for them to come and see you. They don't want to be, do you see what I mean? And to get down to a truly honest level with that person is an art. Do I hit it every time? No. Absolutely not. I don't know anyone who does, but you know, you keep trying because you recognize that's what the objective is. But anyway, there's a, there's a little bit of a thought, yeah. um, word choice. It's perfect sometimes with one person and it is absolutely the wrong thing to say to someone 
at the other time. You know, you, you can say a joke, which is just uproariously funny to one person and so highly offensive to the next, mm-hmm. you know? He said exactly the same thing, but the context was off or the the situation wasn't right. Um, anyway, this is... Uh, yeah, the, know, the, the one saying that I really like and really keep in my mind is that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think this is a really great starting point to just build that honest discussion, build that report with the person in front of you and... And go from there and then you know, over the years to improve that art of using w- good word choices, uh, showing compassion and all of that. That's very, yeah. Tiffany, <laughs> you're going to be fabulous at what you've chosen to do for the rest of your life. Thank you for the encouragement. To end of our episode, Dr. McGill, uh, tell our audiences where they can learn more about you, um, what are your books that you recommend and any last things that you want to say? Well, to be very, uh, our books, our courses are on backfitpro.com. If you're a patient, there's a patient portal where we try and give guidance. And if you're a clinician, there's a clinician portal where we try and give resources and, uh, materials to, enable this commitment to mastery and and help more people with back pain. So I'll just simply say backfitpro.com. And any last words? Only back to you. Uh, The questions you asked, you know, some people will say, oh, can you come on and do a podcast and tell us what causes back pain? And I think, oh, I've only done that a thousand (laughs) times. There's no point anymore. But the questions that you asked were from a such a high level you're very mature in your thoughts you're very broad in your perspectives and uh i hope we've had a a really honest connected conversation and there were a few things that uh uh were, were helpful to you and and you brought them out of me with with your skill so as i said i wasn't kidding you were gonna have a fabulous career and uh, I can hardly wait to see you blossom. I hope I'm around in 20 years and we can do this. And, and uh, you're going to be telling me, uh, oh, this is what you need to do for your back, you you old man. And, uh... <laughs> oh, Dr. Michael, that's really encouraging. And thank you so much. It was a fabulous time speaking with Dr. McGill. Big shout out to him for doing this for Paincast. I learned a lot from the process of preparing for our episodes with Dr. McGill, but I'd also like to thank all my professors and supervisors who helped me broaden my perspectives, entertained my endless questions, and teaching me valuable skills. To our listeners, I hope you also immensely enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Stuart McGill as much as I do, and go with an intrigued mind and a thirsty heart to learn more about assessing and treating back pain. All the best. Thank you.